Part one, sections fifty four to seventy six of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, eighteen eighty eight to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part one, section fifty four. It is better to be an unhappy man than a happy pig. The utilitarians hoped by this golden bridge to get over the chasm which separates them from the promised land of the ideal. But psychology stepped in and rudely interrupted. There are no unhappy people. The unhappy ones are all pigs. Dostoevsky's philosopher of the underworld, Raskolnikov, also Hamlet, and such like, are not simply unhappy men whose fate might be esteemed or even preferred before some happy fates they are simply unhappy swine and they themselves are principally aware of it he that hath ears to hear let him hear fifty five if you want people to envy you your sorrow or your shame look as if you were proud of it if you have only enough of the actor in you rest assured you will become the hero of the day since the parable of the pharisee and the publican was uttered what a lot of people who could not fulfil their sacred duties pretended to be publicans and sinners and so aroused sympathy even envy fifty six philosophers dearly love to call their utterances truths since in that guise they become binding upon us all but each philosopher invents his own truths which means that he asks his pupils to deceive themselves in the way he shows but that he reserves for himself the option of deceiving himself in his own way why why not allow everyone to deceive himself just as he likes fifty seven when xanthippa poured slops over socrates as he returned from his philosophical occupations tradition says that he observed after a storm there is always rain would it not be more worthy not of the philosopher but of philosophy to say after one's philosophical exercise one feels as if one had had slops emptied over one's head and therefore xanthippa did but give outward expression to what had taken place in socrates soul symbols are not always beautiful fifty eight from the notes of an underworld man i read little i write little and it seems to me i think little he who is ill-disposed towards me will say that this shows a great defect in my character. Perhaps he will call me lazy and oblomov, and will repeat the copy-book maxim that idleness is the mother of all the vices. A friend, on the other hand, will say it is only a temporary state, that perhaps I am not quite well. In short, he will find random excuses for me, more with the idea of consoling me than of speaking the truth but for my part i say let us wait if it turns out at the end of my life that i have done not less than others why then it will mean that idleness may be a virtue fifty nine burne a contemporary of heine was very much offended when his enemies insisted on explaining his misanthropic outpourings as the result of a stomach and liver disease it seemed to him much nobler and loftier to be indignant and angry because of the triumph of evil on earth than because of the disorders of his own physical organs sentimentality apart was he right and is it really nobler sixty a real writer disdains to repeat from hearsay events which he has not witnessed 
it seems to him tedious and humiliating to tell in his own words like a schoolboy things which he has fished out of another man's books but there how can we expect him to stoop to such insignificance sixty one whilst conscience stands between the educated and the lower classes as the only possible mediator there can be no hope for mutual understanding conscience demands sacrifices nothing but sacrifices it says to the educated man you are happy well off learned the people are poor unhappy ignorant renounce therefore your well-being or else soothe your conscience with suave speeches only he who has nothing to sacrifice nothing to lose having lost everything can hope to approach the people as an equal this is why dostoevsky and nietzsche were not afraid to speak in their own name and did not feel compelled either to stretch up or to stoop down in order to be on a level with men sixty two not to know what you want is considered a shameful weakness to confess it is to lose forever not only the reputation of a writer but even of a man none the less conscience demands such a confession true in this case as in most others the demands of conscience are satisfied only when they incur no very dire consequences leaving aside the fact that people are no longer terrified of the once so terrible public opinion the public has been tamed it listens with reverence to what is told to it and never dares judge the admission i do not know myself what i want seems to offer a guarantee of something important those who know what they want generally want trifles and attain to inglorious ends riches fame or at the best progress or a philosophy of their own even now it is sometimes not a sin to laugh at such wonders and maybe the time is coming when a rehabilitated hamlet will announce not with shame but with pride i don't in the least know what i want and the crowd will applaud him for the crowd always applauds heroes and proud men sixty three fear of death is explained conclusively by the desire for self-preservation but at that rate the fear should disappear in old and sick people who ought by nature to look with indifference on death whereas the horror of death is present in all living things does not this suggest that there is still some other reason for the dread and that even where the pangs of horror cannot save a man from his end still it is a necessary and purposeful anguish the natural scientific explanation here as usual stops halfway and fails to lead the human mind to the promised goal sixty four moral indignation is only a refined form of ancient vengeance once anger spoke with daggers now words will do and happy is the man who loving and thirsting to chastise his offender yet is appeased when the offence is punished on account of the gratification it offers to the passions morality which has replaced bloody chastisement will not easily lose its charm but there are offences deep unforgettable offences inflicted not by people but by laws of nature how are we to settle these here neither dagger nor indignant word will serve therefore for him who has once run foul of the laws of nature morality sinks for ever or for a time into subsidiary importance sixty five fatalism frightens people particularly in that form which holds it just to say of anything that happens or has happened or will happen be it so 
how can one acquiesce in the actuality of life when it contains so many horrors but amor fati does not imply eternal acquiescence in actuality it is only a truce for a more or less lasting period time is needed in which to estimate the forces and intentions of the enemy under the mask of friendship the old enmity persists and an awful revenge is in preparation sixty six in the ultimate questions of life we are not a bit nearer the truth than our ancestors were everybody knows it and yet so many go on talking about infinity without any hope of ever saying anything it is evident that a result in the usual acceptance of the word is not necessary in the very last resort we trust to instinct even in the field of philosophy where reason is supposed to reign supreme uttering its eternal why why laughs at all possible becauses instinct however does not mock it simply ignores the whys and leads us by impossible ways to ends that our divine reason would hold absurd if it could only see them in time but reason is a laggard without much foresight and therefore when we have run up to an unexpected conclusion nothing remains but for reason to accept or even to justify to exalt the new event and therefore reality is reasonable say the philosophers reasonable not only when they draw their philosophic salaries as the socialists and with them our philosopher vladimir solovyov explained but still reasonable even when philosophers have their maintenance taken away from them nay in the latter case particularly in the latter case in spite of the socialists and vladimir solovyov reality shows herself most reasonable a philosopher persecuted downtrodden hungry cold receiving no salary is nearly always an extreme fatalist although this of course by no means hinders him from abusing the existing order theories of sequence and consequence as we already know are binding only upon disciples whose single virtue lies in their scrupulous logical developing of the master's idea but masters themselves invent ideas and therefore have the right to substitute one for another the sovereign power which proclaims a law has the same power to abolish it but the duty of the subordinate consists in the praise in the consequential interpretation and the strict observance of the dictates of the higher will sixty seven the pharisee in the parable fulfilled all that religion demanded of him kept his fast paid his tithes etc had he a right to be pleased with his own piety and to despise the erring publican everybody thought so including the pharisee himself the judgment of christ came as the greatest surprise to him he had a clear conscience he did not merely pretend before others to be righteous he himself believed in his own righteousness and suddenly he turns out guilty awfully guilty but if the conscience of a righteous man does not help him to distinguish between good and evil how is he to avoid sin what does kant's moral law mean that law which was as consoling as the starry sky kant lived his life in profound peace of soul he met his death quietly in the consciousness of his own purity but if christ came again he might condemn the serene philosopher for his very serenity for the pharisee we repeat was righteous if purity of intentions together with a firm readiness to fulfil everything which appears to him in the light of duty be righteousness in a man sixty eight we jeer and laugh at a man not because he is ridiculous 
but because we want to have a laugh out of him in the same way we are indignant not because this or the other act is revolting to us but because we want to let off our steam but it does not follow from this that we ought always to be calm and smooth woe to him who would try to realize the ideal of justice on earth sixty nine we think with peculiar intensity during the hard moments of our life we write when we have nothing else to do so that a writer can only communicate something of importance in reproducing the past when we are driven to think we have unfortunately no mind to write which accounts for the fact that books are never more than a feeble echo of what a man has gone through seventy chekhov has a story called misfortune which well illustrates the difficulty a man finds in adapting himself to a new truth if this truth threaten the security of his condition the merchant avdyer does not believe that he is condemned that he has been brought to trial and tried and found guilty for his irregularities in a public bank he still thinks the verdict is yet to come he still waits in the world of learning something like this is happening the educated have become so accustomed to think themselves not guilty perfectly in the right that they do not admit for a moment even now that they are brought to court when threatening voices reach them calling them to give an account of themselves they only suspiciously shrug their shoulders all this will pass away they think well when at last they are convinced that misfortune has befallen them they will probably begin to justify themselves like avdyer declaring that they cannot even read printed matter sufficiently well as yet they pass for respectable wise experienced omniscient men seventy one if a man had come to dostoevsky and said to him i am hopelessly unhappy the great artist in human misery would probably at the bottom of his soul have laughed at the naivete of the poor creature may one confess such things of oneself may one go to such lengths of complaint and still expect consolation from his neighbour hopelessness is the most solemn and supreme moment in life till that point we have been assisted now we are left to ourselves previously we had to do with men and human laws now with eternity and with the complete absence of laws is it not obvious seventy two bielinsky in his famous letter accuses gogol among other things that in his correspondence with friends he gogol succumbs to the fear of death of devils and of hell i find the accusation just gogol definitely feared death demons and hell the point is whether it is not right to fear these things and whether fearlessness would be a proof of the high development of a man's soul schopenhauer asserts that death inspired philosophy all the best poetry all the wonderful mythology of the ancients and of modern peoples have for their source the fear of death only modern science forbids men to fear and insists on a tranquil attitude towards death so we arrive at utilitarianism and the positivist philosophy if you wish to be rid of both these creeds you must be allowed to think again of death and without shame to fear hell and its devils it may be there is really a certain justification for concealing fears of such kind in the ability to conceal one's agitation at moments of great danger there is a true beauty but to deaden human sensitiveness and to keep the human intelligence within the bounds of perception such a task can have charms only for a petty creature 
Happily, mankind has no means by which to perform on itself such monstrous castration. Persecuted Eros, it is true, has hidden himself from the eyes of his enemies, but he has never abjured himself, and even the strictest medieval monks could not completely tear out their hearts from their breasts. Similarly with the aspiration towards the infinite. Science persecuted it and put a veto on it. But laboratory workers themselves, sooner or later, recover their senses and thirstily long to get out of the enclosure of positive knowledge with that same thirsty longing that tortured the monks who wanted to get out of the enclosure of monastery walls. 73. If fate, and they say there is such a law, punishes criminals, it has its penalty also for the lovers of good. The former it throttles, the latter it spits upon. The former end in bitter torment, the latter in ignominy. 74. Philosophy has always loved to occupy the position of a servant. In the Middle Ages she was the Ansela Theologi. Nowadays she waits on science. At the same time she calls herself the science of sciences. 75. I wonder which more effectually makes a man rush forwards without looking back the knowledge that behind him hovers the head of Medusa with horrible snakes ready to turn him into stone, or the certainty that in the rear lies the unchangeable order laid down by the law of causality and by modern science. Judging from what we see, judging from the degree of tension which human thought has reached today, it would seem that the head of Medusa is less terrible than the law of causality. In order to escape the latter, man will face anything rather than return to the bosom of scientific cause and effect he embraces madness not that fine frenzy of madness which spends itself in fiery speeches but technical madness for which one is stowed away in a lunatic asylum seventy six to experience a feeling of joy or sorrow of triumph or despair ennui or happiness and so on without having sufficient cause for such feeling is an unfailing sign of mental disease, one of the modern truths which is seeing its last days. End of part one, section seventy six, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.